This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Hey podcast fans, it's Jasmine Wells here, Senior Natural Resource Management Officer for Local Land Services. We're excited to present the Seeds for Success Summer Series, a special crop of episodes all about drought management. In this series, we've gathered the best advice and stories from our past episodes, and we've focused on the challenges and strategies for farming during drought conditions. So let's get into it. First up, you'll hear from Tess Herbert. Tess and her husband Andrew run a 6,000 head cattle feedlot on their property Gundamain at Yagara. Like a lot of you listening, during the drought, the Herberts made the difficult choice to destock. They used software to help them calculate how much stock to sell off so that they could continue to feed their main herd and breeding stock. Rowan Leach sat down with Tess and asked her how she dealt with the challenge of continuing to feed her stock with the increased cost of grain during the drought. It's an interesting question because I can still remember during the drought, again, access to cattle was okay. It was the type of cattle that was a bit of a struggle because, again, we were probably getting more of Boss Indica's content than we wanted. But access to grain was particularly difficult. So we were bringing in grain from a long way away, different states, which was probably somewhere we'd never had to be before. But I think what you learn from those things is that you're looking at your marketplace, you're looking at where you can source your inputs from and you're making those decisions. Can we still, with this as a freight as an increased overhead, can we still make money at the other end? And it was interesting for us having now owning more property, we were making those decisions about on property as well because we were hand feeding a lot of stock. So again, we make the decision, do we destock? Which we did a little bit, but we also decided that we were used to buying in feed for our feedlot and we had those connections. So we continued to buy in feed for our properties as well and to hand feed right through the drought. That was hard, but it was a decision that paid off. Something pretty familiar to what a lot of farmers had to make the decision and you're confident with that decision that you made? I think so. I mean, there's a real challenge about philosophically destocking when you have a breeding herd, that really hard decision that has to be made. Again, we made the decision to do some destocking, but to maintain our core herds of sheep and cattle and to feed them through. And we think that was the right decision at the time. You've talked about how much you rely on your buy price and all those sorts of things, your software to calculate exactly where your cut even and your break even prices are. Is that just as important when destocking for a drought? Yes, because the price that you're buying in commodities, you have to think, can, is it worthwhile keeping these stock? We don't know when this is going to end. There's no date that it says you can stop buying hay on this date and you'll be able to feed through. So you, it's a risk and you make that decision based on we're always hoping that the drought will end. But we also know that there will be another one. And everyone you go through, I think you better set up for the next one and you have more options. And I think your decision-making is better every time you come through one as well. So that probably leads me into a good question. You guys make a lot of silage, but you probably use that mostly straight away in your own system. So probably planning for a long-term drought and laying down silage for 10, 15 years' time, probably not something that you guys do much of. 
we don't do it for that long period of time, but we certainly have three or four years on hand. So we have enough to feed paddock stock as well. And we've also dug pits out at some of the other farms as well, just for silage for the breeding stock. Georgia White moved back to a family sheep farm, Taubragar, near Kula, not long before the drought broke in 2020. She chose to stay on afterwards to help her family manage their flocks through the breeding season. Along the way, Georgia picked up a few tricks she plans to use in the next drought. The biggest one was how to identify the highest performing ewes using EIDs and tagging. Jill Kelly asked Georgia what kind of tech they use to measure performance. Well, pretty much just using scales. We weigh a lot of sheep, like quite often, and record that. Uh, but we have actually given all of the ewes that have EIDs, uh, even though it's not a requirement. It's just something that I feel is really important. You know, being down in Victoria, everyone's down there telling me, oh, it's only, it's only a matter of years anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, because a lot of the bulk is the cost of those tags. Yeah. But you find you get value from the tag like the data collection value outweighs the cost of the tag? Oh, it depends on who you are, but for me, for sure, and for our family, that's definitely something that we believe. We haven't done, obviously, sums because there's a lot of tangible stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But through the drought, I know you guys destocked a bit. You sold sheep. Yes. So with the EID and the data collection useful to identify poor performers? We pretty much just got rid of all our older ewes and just have a young flock. And then while the numbers were down... At about half what we normally have, we thought now's the time to strike. We'll tag everything, and then recorded. So from from that year, we had all of the mobs that they'd been like if they'd had twins or singles or dry. So then we scanned everything on then, and we've been collecting that, that data ever since. Yeah, okay. So it may help you in future times when It'll you want to definitely help us in the future. Which we classed out a mob of views when we we're looking down the barrel of drought and put them aside in a mob to sell if if the season really did go bad, and thankfully it didn't, so we still kept on those. The interesting fact is that the tripleting ewes, when we scanned them, a lot of them came through as those classed-out ewes, and I actually said to our class, what are you doing? You're classing out all our good ewes. He's like, well, I don't know. They've probably been tripleting for five years and they look all scabby and yeah. not great, but in reality they're our best performers, so we never would have known. You know, you don't know looking at them if they're your best performer or not. Yeah, and so the big fat sheep with the beautiful wool that looks all fat score three or four. Yeah, and maybe they're just bringing you singles in every year. Yeah. Like they're doing a good job, but they're not your top ladies. Mm. They're not the ones that you want to keep. Trent Johnston runs a livestock trading enterprise along with his shorthorn bull breeding operations at Forbes and Lyndhurst. Throughout the drought, Trent reflected on what buyers would need post-drought when they started to rebuild their herds. Rowan Leach caught up with Trent to ask him where traders and producers should be focusing their efforts. I believe the cattle job in the next six months, Queensland going to drive a day. They'll come in swinging a pretty big bat, I reckon, like now they're getting a bit of rain. Queensland will drive that cattle job. Like just, I sort of got a little bit of an insight when I take bulls up there, you know, and there's no cattle around up there and them fellas, like a lot of that's real proper cattle country and they'll, they'll come in swinging a big bat for females and that herd rebuilding sort of thing. That's probably one of the major things that's probably going to happen there, looking into a crystal ball. I think livestock in general for the next few years are going to be quite good just with the whole herd rebuilding. Numbers are down, 
plenty of confidence, plenty of feed, and it'll still keep pretty solid. And good quality animals always sell too. Like if you can chase that quality or breed that better quality or spend that little bit extra more on your bull that you buy and stuff like that, that definitely changes things too. I bought up some bulls over the years and kept a bit of a track of what they actually do for you and stuff. I remember the very first time we'd done it, we paid $10,000 for a bull back then. Which was big money back then. That was massive money back then. I still remember the day we bought him. So I kept a bit of a track of it just to see what it actually done. And yeah, that bull made a hell of a difference within our herd. Like, So we sold $240,000 worth of progeny out of that bull, like out of a $10,000 purchase. And ever since then, I've sort of believed that they're always... Like they're a pretty cheap article to buy if you keep track of them and follow it through, you know. We don't mind sort of spending a bit of money if they're the right article, you know. So that return on investment there is not a bad one. That was a good return on investment, that one. But it's like anything. You get some that aren't that good either sometimes. But I think, yeah, quality, crystal ball, quality is always going to pay. Females are where it's going to be at for the next little bit. It sounds like a lot of money going to spending 3500 on a cow and calf unit at the moment or something like that. But you break it down to she's a 600 kilo cow or around that sort of weight, it's not all that much money when you break it down. There's a weaner there and you can put it back in calf again, you know. So things like that. That's what I'm sort of going to be looking at, I suppose, in the next six months or whatever. Mate, have you got any trading tips for producers that are looking to step into trading? Quality. If you can just buy quality, I've just loaded the B-double of not such good quality and that sort of reiterated that today. They were cheap at the time but they are cheap for a reason. Well, I can give you a prime example. So I bought some females at the exact same time, some good well-bred heifers, carved them down. So we bought these cattle in February this year. Yeah, so there were some cattle out of the north that we bought that were cheap. And then I went to Victoria and bought some females out of their well-bred females, carved them down in March and sold them in April. Had them for sort of 60 days and I made $1,300 a unit, clear profit on them and i've had these other northern cattle from february till what is it now start of december and obviously they're not sold yet but they'll be sold tomorrow but in that same sort of period i'm probably only going to make a thousand dollars and that's with weaning a calf off and putting them back in calf you know which is still nothing to be sneezed at a thousand dollars is still a thousand dollars but time period and the amount of feed they consume and stuff like that yeah i'll sort of change my approach a little bit there and it's been the same too with feeding lambs. I've had some disaster stories, probably just animals that are not quite bred well enough or people sort of maybe use their own rams and things like that. A bit of a list of some that I don't sort of worry about touching anymore and others I've, that I'll jump at them at a heartbeat, you know, like I've had some very good composite lambs that have gone pretty well. I remember weighing them last year and I thought there's something wrong with the scales. Like some of them were sort of doing 500 grams a day at their peak, eh? like they were just humming. But it all comes back to quality, I believe. When I first purchased my first starter mob, they were pretty wild and pretty woolly. And that's definitely the first tip that my agent and others have told me is to get into more quality. As long as they're still twisted and you can do it. But if things turn sour and you've got to try and sort of offload them, sometimes that twist isn't there. I'm going to stay with Trent for a bit as he talks about his strategy of spreading his cattle across properties all over the state. This unique approach allows him to spread the geographical risk for his herds. Trent got into how this benefits the health of the herd and how this technique can be used effectively during drought. Rowan asked Trent about how he manages his stock when they're spread out across the state. Yeah, he spent a fair bit of time in a vehicle. 
which is all good too. But I just like spreading the geographical risk. Eh? I'm a big believer on that. Like I started it a little while ago, like a few years ago. Oh, in the drought, actually, I started spreading a few around. And that geographical risk or where some place will get a rain and the other one misses out, there's a big difference there. But yeah, no, I, you do a lot of time in a motor vehicle. I bought a new car this year back in March or something. And now it's got 50 or 1,000 Ks on it in sort of six months or whatever. But yeah, look, it's easy enough to manage if you partner yourself up with some other good farmers that are happy to run an eye over them and, and get on the phone and give you a call if there's something wrong. And that, you know, at the moment I've got the Gunnedah block, so there's 1,300 acres at Gunnedah. And then I uh, got some sheep out at parks. They're out there on adjustment. And then I've obviously got their own sort of one at Forbes. And then I had some cattle down at Wagga, but they just sold them. And then, yeah, got some other country at Lithgow as well, as along with our Lyndhurst country. So, yeah, I've got a bit of a spread on them at the moment. But there was one stage there last year. I remember my wife saying to me, you're mad. We had stock on 13 different places or something. But if you can make the numbers stack up and grass is cheap and transport's cheap, like, if you're doing a few numbers, it, it's all, it all works out in the wash. So you've got to be prepared to get a slap across the wrist every now and then or something like that. But no, I think it works and it works quite well. And actually, I've got there's some at Dubbo too. I've got some lambs at Dubbo. But everything will sort of be making its way back shortly and getting locked up and fed and whatever else. But I do like having them in different areas and keeps you thinking too. I can keeps the brain ticking and that's good. And, and you learn a lot. Like I've learned a lot by doing that, like just different areas and how they work and what's the better times of the year. And I remember I sent some lambs out to Condo, not this winter, one just before, and like they were flying, eh? like I had 1,500 lambs out there on adjustment, just the slow blokes crop up and oh, they absolutely flew. And, and, you know, and that's sort of a bit warmer country too. And if you can move it around to suit the climate a little bit, it's a good thing, I think, as long as you're happy to get out and about and chase it a bit, I suppose. Probably... The drought and spreading your risk is really what's driven you. Yeah, for sure. For sure, without a doubt. I remember I sent uh, cattle down to Lithgow for the winter. I mean, I I was born down there and, and sort of left there a fair while ago now, but I remember the winters being cold down there and I thought I'm mad probably sending cattle down there, but they're running around down there in the hills and they can actually sort of get up in the hills and they sort of get half protected. And, and now that's an ongoing thing. So every sort of March I'll wean my calves and boot the cows down there and they spend the winter down there and sort of bring them back in August, you know, and they come back fat as fools. Like, and you just, I can't fathom it, but they get up them gullies and they get out of the weather and it's not too bad. So it's been different ways to learn things. I learned a bit like that sort of stuff when I went over to Canada a couple of years ago and we went to a university that were doing some studies there and they were trying to wind down the cows, like how much they could feed them during winter. And I remember like, so they had some 500 kilo cows and they, they were in snow up to their bellies and they wound them down to like 10 kilos a day and they held their condition. And it was things like that sort of impressed me. And I learned a bit and thought, well, you can make them tough it out if you have to over the winter, like especially dry cows. So it's about that livestock class and suiting livestock class to feed source? For sure. Yeah, without a doubt. Yep. Now, if you want them wieners, I tend to get them on a crop and not afraid to feed the crop too. Like fertilizer prices are quite dear at the moment, but in all seriousness, they're still reasonable when you're, you know, getting $6 a kilo for steers and $9 dressed for lambs or something like that. You know, it's still quite urea at whatever price it is now. Like I know before this next lot of rain sort of comes or something, the next forecast, decent rain at Forbes, I'll hit this brassica with a heap of urea and not be afraid to have a crack at it, you know. Yeah, we're at a lucky time with high costs of inputs but it's also high commodity prices all around isn't it yeah exactly right yeah it's, it's a very good time to be in the agricultural game i suppose but i guess we're making up for some 
times a few years ago where it was all just going out the door and, and not coming back in. So it's a nice business to be in for this at the moment. What are some of the advantages or and disadvantages of leasing over owning the country or leasing adjacent? Leasing is good. You're locked in there for a certain period of time when everything's going in your favour, that's fine. It gets a bit dry. It might not be as enjoyable. But I guess with leasing, we're still sort of building up some of our foothold, I suppose, with country and probably want to go again shortly. You know, in the next couple of years, I might be able to do something again and expand again. But with leasing, I guess it's just a cheaper alternative at the moment. If you're paying whatever the figure may be on some lease country compared to an interest rate, if you can correlate those two and sort of build a bit of equity along the way, I think it's definitely the cheaper way to go leasing at the moment. And look, there's a lot of farmers I've found that don't want to sell their farm necessarily. They're happy just to sit there. I had one at Bogabroy last year happy just to sit there and potter around and treat my animals like they're his own and I give him a purpose. But, you know, they don't want to let it go, but they're happy to let someone else come in there and utilise it and do the job on it. But there's plenty of older fellas that are looking to do that and don't want to actually leave, but there's opportunities there to maybe lease a bit of country off them. Adjusting's good. It's good until you have to get off, I suppose. It's been very fruitful for us over the time, but it's still, as long as you're getting putting kilos on, adjusting's the go as well. So... They both got their advantages. Disadvantages are sometimes you get boxed into a corner and you've got to get them off and you think, where the hell am I going to go now? So you start getting on the phone and ringing up and see where you can find another little pocket or you ring up and order another semi-load of pellets or whatever for the feedlot and you just yeah, tighten them up in there a bit and, and go from there. Yeah, I think I remember a pretty frantic phone call from you six months ago or so and you yep, yeah mate just uh got this uh, <laughs> a fair bit of urgency on this one so <laughs> i appreciate if you give me a call back <laughs> yes yeah there's been a few of them sort of phone calls that you know it's not what you know it's a lot of the time i don't think there's ever been a true word said as far as that goes if you can branch out and and call on some other people that might just know of someone it's a good thing and agriculture it's a pretty tight-knit community that always willing to help out another fella and i remember that frantic call uh, they were on their way and we didn't really have anywhere to put them but anyway we found a spot and that's been good we made a really good friend out of that too you know what didn't know this bloke from a bar of soap and then we've become quite good mates and he's a good fella yeah trent had a lot of good ideas about farming during drought conditions so this last clip is from him as well in this clip you'll hear trent share how living through a drought changes your view on farming Rowan asked Trent about the biggest lessons he took away from the drought. You know, off the top of my head, I, I can't really think of anything that's really a concern to me. The next drought's not that far around the corner, obviously, but we've all learned from the last one. I know I've learned a lot of different ways to manage it and feeding stock and doing things a lot different that way. It always, it's etched in the back of your mind that you've got to remember what to do from the last one. And there were some testing times there, don't worry. And I mean, we're in a pretty safe area too, where we are usually, but still test you. And I, was, I remember calling mates out west and, and seeing what they're doing and getting a few of their ideas. And, and it was it was very good and it got you through it. But I guess that's probably one concern is the next drought. It's not that far away. We can't have good seasons like we've had two years in a row. And I've never seen a candle burn at both ends yet. So I think that's probably one of the things going forward we're going to have to deal with again, surely. Yeah, so that's probably one of the big learnings that a lot of people got out of this last drought is they've picked up a lot on drought feeding and confinement feeding and that sort of thing. So what particularly have you learnt there? I learnt that cows, you can feed them pretty ruthless. And having clients up in Queensland, I went and visited some clients there in September and it's pretty ordinary up there at the moment, or it was for them. Some of them guys are up feeding 30% urea. Like, except you just don't let them go without. Like, make sure you keep it up to them. But 
you know, I was doing a lot of straw and urea for dry cows in the drought. Don't be afraid to wean them early. They're tough little buggers. Like, they can handle it and as long as you keep the protein up to them and stuff. Cows are pretty ruthless. Like, yeah, I remember thinking, I'm going to kill these things. But, yeah, no, they just kept going. And, and they done quite well on it. But I think when you feed a lot of urea, you've got some fertility issues sometimes. But as long as you can sort of manage that along the way, it's good. And a lot of minerals too. Like, I'm a big believer in minerals, a lot of dry licking stuff. I do that on induction into the feeding lambs too. They get a mineral dry lick and also uh, some liquid minerals in their troughs. And minerals are a play a big part in nutrition, I reckon. More in that high rainfall zone of at Lindhurst there or just everywhere? I think everywhere. Like, And the animals, they're pretty smart. They work out what they need and what they don't need. But I remember in the drought, like at Forbes here at, in 19, I was feeding just some straw and some high sort of urea content and some dry lick and stuff like that. And they were mowing through the dry lick, but then they were also eating leaves off trees and just keeping them going. I've done a lot of calculations as to what we were feeding a lot of ewes out there at the time as well, and I was pretty ruthless on them. One day they were getting fed pellets, and then the next day they were just getting straw, you know, and it worked. And we got some quite good conception rates by doing that, we had them confined in a pen and they got sort of 1.2 kilos, I remember, 1.2 kilos of pellets we were giving them. That was on one day and the next day they were getting straw and then they'd go back to another day, 1.2 kilos of pellets and the next day they got some good canola hay and, you know, I wound our ration costs right back down. I think for memory I had them, I think it was like $3.30 a week I was sort of feeding these ewes and getting them back in lamb, you know, like it's you can wind it down and, some learning was done there. It was good. And it wasn't at the expense of fertility either. So just with giving them minerals and that as well, you know, along the way. So it really, probably a final point is just that you've really got to do your numbers, whether it's from trading or feeding or whatever. Yeah, without a doubt, do your numbers. Don't be afraid to get a slap across the wrist every now and then. Just bounce back and learn from your mistakes. Yeah, don't be afraid to ask people as well. Like that's what I've found out. Like get on the phone and my wife's always up me that I'm always on the phone or my phone's always ringing or something like that. She's sort of come to terms with it now and understands that it's always ringing and stuff like that. And it was a bit of a shock for her at the start, like, you know, people ringing all the time. And now she knows that obviously that telephone's probably a important part of the business too. And you can make a lot of decisions off a couple of phone calls here and there and, and calling in a mate every now and then to give you some advice or someone that might have done it that you can learn something off. So that's it for today's episode. If you want to listen to the full interview with any of today's guests, you can find links to those episodes in the show notes. I'm Jasmine Wells and I'll chat to you next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.